welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week, WFIU's Betsy Shepard speaks with filmmaker and actress Chris Swanberg. Swanberg is best known for her work as a pioneering member of the mumblecore film movement in the early 2000s. The movement stressed low-budget digital filmmaking, often casting non-actors. Swanberg came to the WFIU studios in March while visiting the Indiana University Cinema. Betsy Shepard, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest today is Chris Swanberg. Chris Swanberg is an actress and filmmaker noted for her work in independent film. She studied film production at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale and earned a master's in education from DePaul University. After working as a high school teacher for several years, she began her acting career starring in Kissing on the Mouth, an indie film that ushered in the mumblecore movement. Chris Swanberg produced the IFC web series, Young American Bodies, with her husband, Joe Swanberg, and she's made several feature-length films, including Empire Builder from 2012 and Unexpected, which premiered at the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Chris, thank you for being here today. So excited to be here. So you, you studied film in college, but then you went into education and worked at a high school for several years, and then... Came back to film. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little well, bit? Well, maybe I didn't actually like really make a departure, um, but that is definitely what I was doing kind of in the background. So, or maybe film was in the background at the time. I graduated from film school, went to Chicago, did make that movie Kissing on the Mouth with my husband and uh, my friends at the time. And then... Um, uh, made a short and, um, but mostly was, you know, trying to kind of make ends meet. I was like 24 or 25 at the time and trying to figure out like how I was going to make a living. So I started working at some non-for-profits. I've uh, always been interested in working with kids, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have my degree in education or, or anything like that. I just did my undergrad was just in film production. So I started working for like an after school program that taught kids, you know, how to make like short films. And uh, we were, I was teaching a kid how to edit on Final Cut Pro. And literally a, a man walked into the classroom and I had never seen him before. And he said, oh, hi, are you, I see you're teaching Final Cut Pro. And I said, yeah. And he said, do you want to be a high school teacher? <laughs> and I said, Oh, sure. And it turns out he was the in charge of this new program in Chicago Public Schools um, that was called Education to Careers, basically a vocational program for some of the high schools. Uh, and so there was an opening and I got a job as a full time high school teacher. You know, I was teaching like five classes 
um, with like a regular high school salary. And um, I just taught film and video to sophomores, juniors and seniors. So I did that for um, a couple of years and it was incredible. It was uh, mind blowing. And I had these great relationships with my students and learned a lot. But it's very frustrating working for CPS and working, you know, the administration was getting turned over all the time and working at a like a low income high school. They really use it like a guinea pig. So there's just constant policy changes and the kids are always uprooted and things are changing for them. And um, they ended up shutting the high school down, firing all the teachers and reopening it under a different name contracting the school out to a private organization to run so that's you know how I stopped is that they kind of laid everybody off but at that point I was so enamored by education that I went back and got my master's and um, I never really used it after that I intended to keep teaching but ended up weirdly running an ice cream company for a few years and then I'm you know now I'm full-time back into film Are there any ways in which you think that experience of teaching film to kids influenced how you make films? Oh, interesting. Probably not. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I have I've never thought about that before. Um, No, I mean, it's probably reinforcing, you know, every time I, I talk to universities or or talk to young filmmakers and give them advice on on what to do, how to become a working filmmaker. I'm also find myself like sort of reminding myself of the same things I'm telling them, you know, so um, so it's probably a little reinforcing. But no, you know, I was like teaching them pretty like basic stuff. And and mostly what I started doing with them is having facilitating their own kind of personal projects about like their family and their neighborhood and stuff like that. I I found that to be like the most useful um, for them in terms of like making art and also, um, you know, in terms of like the capabilities of the equipment we had, et cetera. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, Betsy Shepard is speaking with filmmaker Chris Swanberg. We'll be back in a moment. Going back to your experience in film school and you being the student, Mm -hmm. what were some of the valuable things that you took away from it? And maybe what were some of the things that you've since tried to unlearn or (laughs) step Um, away from? 
was Southern Illinois University is very small school has a very small film program but at the time when when I was there I graduated in 2003 um, they were a little behind the curve in terms of technology and everything was still being shot and on film and edited on film and so we were shooting things on super 8 that was our first production course and then 16 non-sync sound and then we did sync sound and um that was awesome. At the time, it, that was when digital video was really coming in to the consumer level. And I remember feeling frustrated that I like was forced to make all this stuff on film when I could be doing this new like digital video stuff. And now looking back, I it's like a shame I didn't utilize that more because um, I actually just went back to the university um, to speak to students and found that, of course, they're not working on film anymore. And it was like really sad. So, you know, I I wish I had done that a little bit more um, and I wish I had done more than what was required. I spent, you know, all a lot of my time doing my film projects for classes um, and then I did a little bit of stuff on the side, but, you know, spent a lot of time like playing video games and like <laughs> hanging out and uh, socializing and laying around and watching like PBS Kids. I watch a lot of PBS Kids. Um, and I wish I had done like kind of more work. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, all in all, it was awesome. I, ha- I had a great undergrad experience. Well, you actually were studying documentary film production, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't separate there. It was like okay. small enough so that whether or not you were interested in documentary or narrative or experimental, you were in the same string of production classes. But that school in particular, I think still now has more of a focus on definitely art versus, you know, like studio filmmaking, definitely an independent mindset there. And um Uh, A focus on experimental and documentary, which I think is really helpful now as a current narrative filmmaker to have my foundation in in those fields. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How how documentary filmmaking influence your style because you use a lot of natural scenery and non-actors and yeah exactly so I got into documentary I'm just more interested in stuff that feels like real life and and I'm I tend to be attracted to other f- people's films that are more naturalistic about things that are not fantastical. You know, I like stuff that's like about normal people, relationships. Um, and so I do employ a lot of those kind of documentary techniques in my filmmaking now in terms of like how I how I write, how I um, how I perceive what good acting feels like and sounds like. And, you know, even like cinematically, like camera and stuff like that, I'm trying to make everything feel as real as possible. Well, that's a good lead into talking about Kissing on the Mouth, which is which was the first film that you is that the first film that you acted in? Yeah. And I noticed in the intro, uh, you describe me as an actress and I'm always described as an actress and I like definitely don't feel like I am. I think it's because. I don't know. At some point, someone wrote a bio that said I was an actress and it keeps being used. And then also my IMDb, I have like a lot of credits for acting. But I'm like, I definitely don't feel like I'm an actress. I sort of just do it as a default. Like in our earlier work, it was kind of like, uh, like, what were we going to get? Like Nicole Kidman and come in and like be in our movie when we were like 25 years old. So we just uh, each other, you know, we just acted in it. Ourselves. You were improvising. Yeah, we were improvising. We were just doing our own thing, and um, 
it's easy that way, you know, schedule wise, you don't have to coordinate with a bunch of other people. And um, I'm pretty good at acting like myself on camera. And that is all that was required of me for those earlier films. And then um, I've acted in like a few friends projects and stuff. So, but yeah, Kissing on the Mouth was the first thing we did out of college. It was definitely my husband now, boyfriend at the time, Joe, he was definitely the motivator. He was the one that was like, okay, we've been out of school for a year. We got to make something. And I was like, all right, well, so we got to write a script. We got to do storyboards. We got to like do all the stuff. And he was like, no, 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 no. Let's just like do it. Let's just play around. Let's act in it ourselves and let's just make it. And I was like, okay. And then that's what we did. So it took us like six months to make that movie. We were, you know, we were all had regular part-time jobs so we were just doing it on nights and weekends and um, we also didn't know what we were making so we would just meet up and kind of drink beers and eat pizza and kind of like talk about it and um, we would go take field trips to go see movies a lot um, talk about those and um, and then Joe would edit something together and we would all look at it and uh, kind of try and figure out what we would do next and and then we were the only crew so there were four of us that made it that acted in it and like were the crew. Did the plot kind of evolve or change based on some of the movies that you were seeing in the process of making it? You know, I can't think of any movies that were directly influential in terms of what we were making, but it, our plot definitely changed just based on like, you know, we were all kind of playing versions of ourselves. And yeah, I, you know, we we sort of like the plot just kept evolving depending on like what we were going through in real life. And the movie is seen as quintessential mumblecore movie. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could just explain to our listeners what that is and what your take on it is. Mumblecore. Um, well, we premiered that movie in 2005. And then for like the next two years, 2005 and 2006, we went to South by Southwest and weirdly there were other people there that were doing similar stuff so it was very new at the time it was new to be shooting a feature on digital video and it was new concept to be not an actor and be acting in your own work it was a new concept to be be making a narrative that was kind of like based on your own personal life and it was a new concept to have a narrative film that was improvised you know that wasn't like haha slapstick funny improvised but just like dramatically improvised so that was very unique and strangely at the same time there were other people that were doing similar work so um the duplass brothers were there with the puffy chair at the same time and we made friends with them mark you know mark duplass and his girlfriend at the time katie were both in the movie, both in the puffy chair, they were in a real relationship. In the movie, they're also in a relationship. Um, it's, gosh, I think it's improvised. I, I actually don't know. I don't remember if it's improvised or not. But, you know, they were playing versions of themselves. That movie was new. There's another movie called Mutual Appreciation by a filmmaker named Andrew Bajowski that was there that year. And then the next year, there's a movie uh, called Dance Party Say by a filmmaker named Aaron Katz. And, uh, yeah, there's just, like, a lot of people that weirdly were doing similar stuff to us, and we didn't know them before. So we kind of created a little community, 
and became friends and uh, and ended up going to lots of film festivals together. You know, the movie traveled along and, and so did we. And we, um, you know, we didn't decide to create a film movement, but it kind of got perceived that way in the press. And there somebody um, came up with that name. I think it was Andrew Brzezowski's cinematographer um, came up with the name Mumblecore because we were all sort of like rambling and like, you know, mumbling in the movies. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, it, it kind of like, it was cool that it had a name actually, because then it was able to get some press and people were able to put a name to it. They were able to call it something. They were able to talk about it. And it was a real boon for all of our careers, you know. Um, their IFC Center in New York did a screening. Um, and then in 2007, Joe, my husband now, uh, did a movie called Hannah Takes the Stairs where he cast Mark Duplass and Andrew Bajowski and uh, Greta Gerwig and um, Rai Russo-Young, who's another filmmaker. And and so all those people came together in, in one film. And so that, you know, I think that movie in particular got a lot of attention because of that. When you went to the 2005 South by Southwest film showcase, were you and Joe surprised to see that there was, you know, what you were doing was also Totally. And it was so small. I mean, that year there were much bigger films there. And and it's not like the film festival was, we were a spotlight of the film festival at all. Uh, South by Southwest is a really big film festival. Back then it was a little bit smaller um, and and less crazy. That was before the interactive component. So Austin wasn't filled with you know, thousands and thousands of people like it is now. But um, it was still a big deal. And yeah, we were definitely surprised to see that other people were making work similar to ours, but it, it wasn't the, it wasn't like the focus or anything. Other people, I don't think other people noticed. <laughs> but you were but able to meet up. We and... were able to meet up and, and become friends and, and are still, you know, have relationships with these people. And today. did you have discussions about the aesthetics your shared aesthetics or what you were kind of going for? Or... Yeah, totally. I mean, for sure. We, I think more than the aesthetics, we had discussions about the logistics, um, about how to make a movie. I mean, so many people at the time, it take them years, you know, to have a, a script, to write a script, and then years to find the money and produce a script, find the actors, etc. And for us, you know, we were able to have such a quick turnaround because Joe wasn't writing scripts and um, and I wasn't either with my earlier work. So we were able to work on it right away. And then we just cast ourselves so we didn't have to kind of wait around. And we did it for so cheap um, because, uh, you know, we had a camera and final cut and we didn't need much else. So I think, you know, Kissing in the Mouth, I think, had a budget of like a thousand dollars or something. It was like mostly we spent on pizza. <laughs> was there any kind of precedent for taking that approach, just doing it yourself and doing it on the fly? Um, uh, no. I mean, all of that came from Joe. He was really motivated to do that stuff. I, and and uh, and I don't think so. You know, he was a big fan of a lot of early independent f- filmmaking work. But um, no, you know, I, I know he really liked Roger Corman, who worked really quickly. Um, but I don't think there's anything directly where he was like, let's do it like this. You know, I think it just sort of like came out of him. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned Roger Corman mm-hmm. because he actually came to IU to speak a couple of years ago and he talked about budget art. Oh, cool. And interestingly enough, a lot of his movies deal with a youth demographic. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of your films do as well. Yeah. Are you specifically 
targeting a younger generation? No, I think like uh, what what do you mean a, a youth demographic? So it seems like a, a, a lot of Roger Corman movies, yeah. he's targeting a younger audience. Yeah. And maybe it's because they, you know, like younger people aren't as caught up in yeah. scripts or like high production values yeah. or something. Yeah. I was wondering if you were... No, I, I tend to make movies about myself <laughs> and, like, whatever I'm going through at the time, right? So, like, when I was younger, I was making stuff about what it was like to be younger. And now that I'm, like, in my mid-30s, I'm kind of, like, making work about what it's like to be in your mid-30s. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm, like, definitely not targeting anyone for sure. I'm just, like, making stuff that I'm kind of, like, into at the time. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, Betsy Shepard is speaking with filmmaker Chris Swanberg. We'll be back in a moment. good segue would be talking about Young American Bodies, which mm-hmm. is a yeah. web series that you and Joe collaborated on. Yeah. And uh, it was picked up by IFC. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk about how digital distribution facilitates, you know, young filmmakers. Yeah, that was like all very new at the time. Uh, we, uh, let me think. Okay, so there's this website called Nerve.com. And, um, Back in the day, it was, oh, I think we started in 2006. Web series was like a very new concept. So people were like, okay, there's the internet and, and technology has grown so that we can stream video on the tech, on the internet. I mean, this is like pre-YouTube. I think YouTube started in 2006. So this was like very early. And uh, people got this kind of idea i mean there really there's just like rumors that like you could make a show on the internet really short and so we emailed nerve or, or perhaps oh nerve did like a an article an interview with joe an article about kissing on the mouth and they i you know i think how it went is they kind of floated the idea of like if you ever wanted to do some video content for us maybe we should work on something together and so joe said, hey, we want to do a TV show for you guys. And they gave us a little bit of money to do that. I think they gave us $500 an episode, uh, which seemed like a ton. And they were really short. They were like seven minutes or something. And uh, and yeah, Joe and I collaborated together and both acted in it. 
uh it was great we did like four seasons of that show and then um the second season we asked for a little bit more money and then the third season ifc picked it up um and it started streaming on ifc.com and and then i think at some point on ifc channel but yeah our budget kept growing we were like couldn't believe someone was giving us money and um it was really fun so for our listeners who might not be familiar, Young American Bodies is about sex and love lives of 20-something-year-olds living in Chicago. Yeah. And you said that you were inspired to make films about your own life. Mm-hmm. But were you sort of, were you also motivated because there wasn't really anything like that? Yeah, and you wanted... for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, very early in our career, I think, you know, I think still, like, sex and relationships is, like, something that, weirdly is like taboo and people don't don't ever really get right in media um normally you know at the time i think we felt very passionate about it and i know i did i felt very strongly like listen like i'm i am like a young person in my 20s that has a sex life and it's not being represented anywhere and it's not like i was into like crazy kinky stuff it was just like real relationship um stuff and i felt like in media it was either uh sex was either over glamorized or like over romanticized right so like white sheets and candlelights and all of the stuff or it was like pornography and i didn't feel like anything was sort of down the middle felt like real sex and um and so that was something we talked a lot about and were like really passionate about and wanted something like that to exist and to normalize it. So, yeah, that, there was a lot of sex and young American bodies. It was kind of, you know, it was about sexual relationships, usually like monogamous dating, kind of like uh, romantic relationships, too. But um, but definitely like sex within those stories. Some of the most popular TV shows now, like Girls and, yes. and Broad City, or definitely seems like they're at least playing off of that model. Yeah, I think Lena, Lena for sure um, was like a fan of Young American Bodies and when she was in college. And uh, and I wrote Joe a fan letter um, that, you know, said she was like into his stuff. And um, Lena's first movie, creative nonfiction was at South by Southwest the, in 2009, the same year my uh, my first movie was. So, you know, Lena definitely has her own stuff going on. And she's, like, super smart and really brave and sure of herself. But I think seeing some of our early work was definitely um, something where she, you know, she said, like, oh, cool, people are doing stuff like this. I should do stuff like this. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of your feature films. Okay. In 2012, you released Empire Builder, and it's about a mom who retreats to a cabin in Montana. And the husband in the movie is played by your actual husband. Yeah. And the baby in the movie is played by your actual baby. Yeah. And and I was wondering what it's like to work, to have your work life and your family life overlap in such a dramatic way. Yeah, we do it all the time. Um, we're constantly making work that's really personal. All of my work is really personal. All of Joe's work, for the most part, is really personal. 
um, and we're married and, <laughs> and we've been together since we were 18. So we, uh, you know, now we have kids. So yeah, we're, we're always kind of like intertwining that stuff. And, um, it doesn't feel weird to me. It feels like really normal. Um, it, uh, I hope it's not weird for my kids <laughs> later. I'm sure it will be. Um, but yeah, Empire Builder, you know, it, Joe ended up playing the husband because we went to Montana and we, to shoot the movie and we had such a small crew that it didn't make sense um, to have anyone else play that part because it was really only just one scene in uh, Montana that he would be in, which is like the last scene of the movie. So it was like, oh, we'll just get Joe to do it. And then we ended up coming back to Chicago and shooting like an additional like 20 minutes for the film that I hadn't planned on shooting. So the first half of Empire Builder is kind of an afterthought. And so I had to like keep working with Joe, of course, because he was in that other scene in Montana. So it probably if I had had the forethought and planning to know that I would use that character that much, I would have cast somebody else um, only because uh, Joe and I usually bump heads when we work together. So uh, we tend not to collaborate anymore. But it worked out really well. He was like really good at just following my direction and stuff. And um, and he's like a really good actor. And and yeah, he was good at it. And then the baby, you know, again, it was like sort of logistically like I knew a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, it's definitely a personal film. It definitely reflects a lot of my feelings about motherhood at the time. Um, Yeah, it was, but it it wasn't like I had all the choices in the world and all the money in the world. And I chose my husband and kid. Um, Mm -hmm. It was definitely like logistical reasons, first and foremost. Well, it's a really interesting dynamic because you're exploring motherhood and perhaps some struggles that you have. Definitely. And you're also directing your husband as your on screen husband. Do you does it do you get to reconcile some relationship issues in that process or Uh, like No, but but I felt like that movie was therapeutic for me. You know, that the stuff that the movie is about is stuff that I was really working through at that point. So um, I would say like Empire Builder, when I was in production of Empire Builder, I really was feeling very trapped by motherhood. um, And I was staying at home. Um, So I I wasn't working. I was like staying home with my kid. And I felt really trapped and, and guilty for feeling trapped. And that movie, I made that movie while I was still feeling that stuff. And then Unexpected is about that stuff too, but it's more in reflection. So when I was in production for Unexpected, I had kind of resolved those issues, uh, those emotional issues within myself. And then I made a movie about how I used to feel. And Empire Builder, I was still going through that stuff at the time. So yeah, it felt therapeutic to make it, but um, but it didn't it didn't fix anything necessarily. So Unexpected is kind I mean, it's a prequel, it seems like, or at least it, it goes back in time to an earlier stage of motherhood. Yeah. Did you always plan to do it that way? Or did that just, did you come up with the idea um, for Unexpected after? I came afterwards? up with the idea after, let me think, in 2012, I had finished teaching. So when I taught high school, you know, Unexpected's very autobiographical. So when I taught high school, 
right after I got laid off, one of my former students who was 19 at the time called me and someone, a student I was, had a very close relationship with, called me and said that she was pregnant. And I happened to be six months pregnant at the time. So that really happened to me, you know, and it was different in the movie. She was no longer in high school. I was no longer her teacher. I wasn't trying to get her into college. You know, we didn't go to yoga together, etc. But that relation dynamic of me being pregnant, this like middle class white woman um, at the same time as this teenager, you know, low income teenager was really bizarre and very unique and something that anytime I would get stressed out about like making my own baby food and like cloth diapers and all of the stuff um, that we have like so much pressure to like do everything perfectly. I would just like look at this woman and and think like I'm just like over obsessing with this stuff. It's like not really important. And and so I was finding a lot of consolation in my relationship with her. And I think, you know, she too with me and uh and it was just you know it was really I didn't have any friends that were pregnant at the time I was like the youngest one of all of my friends to have a kid and she was the only friend I had at the time that was going through the same thing and and so it was really um really unique and really amazing and so I I sort of like uh, didn't realize it at the time, like, oh, this would be a great movie. But in reflection, years later, I thought that that's like an amazing story. So, so yeah, so that's why I said it during that time of pregnancy, because, you know, it was something that really happened to me. So Unexpected is about that. It's about the challenges of motherhood, and it parallels these two experiences. Right. One with a high school teacher and her student who becomes pregnant at mm-hmm. the same time. Mm-hmm. So how has the student that inspired this movie reacted to the film? Has oh, she, she seen loves it? it. Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. She's so into it. She loves it. She's like, she's very proud of it. You know, some stuff really happened and she gets a kick out of that. Some stuff is based on other kids I knew and, you know, of course she's the only one besides me that really knows everything um, in terms of that relationship. And and so it's really fun for us to kind of like reflect and she, yeah, she's way into it and we're still really close and um, she's like, she's pretty private. So she doesn't really want everyone to know that it's really about her, but like her, her close friends and family do. And um, yeah, she's excited that people can just watch on Netflix and stuff. So it's cool. Well, you, you've talked about how you use your own life in film and how you take inspiration from things that happen to you. And I was wondering, could you talk about the challenges of trying to capture someone else's experience, namely the Jasmine character mm-hmm. in, an ex- in Unexpected, mm-hmm. the, the, the teen mom mm-hmm. or soon-to-be teen mom? How did you script that character? Did you did you consult with her or was it just based on... Yeah, I mean, we were friends, right? Yeah. So, like, I had a pretty good idea of, like, how she felt about things because we've just had those conversations and what her real-life experience is like. And then I also taught lots of kids, you know, so I and was close to a lot of them. So used some of their those other stories to inspire the character as well. Um, but I was very conscious of making sure that this character was realistic, you know, and, and was uh, something based in reality instead of just my idea of what it must be like to be like a low income teenager in Chicago. 
you know, I all of that came from real stuff that I knew to be true. And from teaching in that community, I spent a lot of time in the neighborhoods. I did go to baby showers. I did um, go to first birthday parties and um, took kids to uh, go buy their dress for homecoming and um, met their parents and godparents and, you know, went to barbecues and stuff like that. So it it all stemmed from that, not only my experience, but also from Samantha's point of view, my assumptions before I had those experiences of what those neighborhoods might be like. Um, and then I think the the reality of, of like experiencing that for the first time. So, yeah. And then in, in addition to that, I did I, I did share the script uh, with my former student and we talked about that stuff. And then uh, when I cast Gail Bean, uh, who played Jasmine, she also brought her own feelings and experiences to that as well. Another character of sorts in the movie is is the city of Chicago itself. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a big staple in your films. Chicago is the backdrop, but it it really has a lot of personality in the films. I was wondering if you could talk about what it's like to make movies in a city that's maybe not really known for the film industry. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of films shot there in the 80s and 90s. John Hughes made, like, you know, all of his movies there and, and then, like, Blues Brothers and uh, and now, you know, like, Terminator and uh, or maybe not Terminator, Transformers. Uh, movies like that are shot in Chicago, but... Um, those usually utilize sort of like the backdrop of the Sears Tower and um, like downtown sort of scenes. And living in Chicago, it's really a city of neighborhoods. Um, that's really where the heart of the city is. And and so I wanted that stuff to be in there, you know. And then especially politically, the school system is something that I, I'm very passionate about, public education. And they're just doing so many bad things (laughs) to screw it up in Chicago and and uh and also it's so segregated the schools are so segregated when I walked into the the high school that I taught at it was the first time I ever realized that there was like literally a school that was like completely African-American I didn't think anything like that could exist in our country and you know and it does and um and so I wanted to portray that um how I saw it and uh um, that specific thing, unfortunately, is not unique to Chicago, but but definitely is a part of of that city. Well, both of the two characters, they ha- they come from very different backgrounds, but they both have to compromise on some right. of their career goals. Right. And Samantha has to pass on a dream job while Jasmine can't really afford to go to the college of her choice. What are what are some of the challenges that you face as a filmmaker? And a woman and a wife and a mom. Yeah. What are some of the things that maybe career goals that you've had to compromise? Totally. Uh, Just like a bunch of stuff. You know, when I was pregnant, I got like opportunities. So I I have two kids. I have a five-year-old and then I have a seven-month-old. And Unexpected came out just like a few weeks before I gave birth. So I was pregnant. Uh, at Sundance. And I was pregnant when the movie was released. And I was pregnant when it premiered at European film festivals. And I couldn't go to a lot of those places. Um, I was just, you know, at some point you can't travel. And uh, in the beginning, I was like really, really sick. 
and I had to kind of like give up a lot of that stuff. I couldn't, you know, couldn't drink. So there's like a lot of stuff that I was just kind of like bummed out about that I had to kind of miss. And then beyond that, you know, when <clears throat> when I gave birth to my daughter, um, uh, uh, just a week afterwards, my husband's movie Digging for Fire premiered in New York and he left to go to the premiere and do all the press and all that stuff. And that was hard for him because he had just had a baby. Of course, he wanted to be at home, but it was possible. And it would have been entirely too difficult for me to have done that. And then everybody knows that, right? So I think people treat you differently if you're a woman and a mother than if you a dad and a father. And, you know, and almost all the time people say like, well, what are you going to do with the kids? When you're pregnant and you're a woman, people are constantly asking you, what are you going to do about childcare? What are you going to do about childcare? What are you going to do? Are you going to work? Are you going to stay home? What are you going to do about childcare? If you're a man and your wife is pregnant, no one asks you those questions. No one's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, it's assumed that you're, the wife will deal with that stuff. Even now, you know, even progressive people uh, in urban cities, that's still the response is that it's not your problem. You'll just keep kind of moving along. You maybe you'll have to take a week off, but um, it's, it's like the woman's problem. And essentially it is, you know. So um, so I think in general, um, even though I am have, you know, a very progressive relationship with my husband, he's very helpful. He's super um, supportive. He's like a great dad. He's a really involved dad. He, um, he doesn't think about childcare, schools, daycare, babysitters. Um, what kind of food they're going to have for dinner. Like, uh, what will they go to summer camp? What kind of summer camp? Should I research a bunch of summer camps? I mean, uh, all of that stuff falls on my plate. And, you know, that's okay. I like that stuff. But but it, it's just a lot more work, uh, I think, for a woman. Well, I think you've done a fantastic job of showing Thanks. that. that child care and having children motherhood hasn't slowed you down i mean you've had a prolific career yeah i mean it has happen. slowed me down a little bit for yeah. sure um it's you know i took two years off to stay home and and um and i, I have to think about about it a lot but um but it's it's wonderful and i found for myself i found a a balance. I don't want to, I hate to use the word balance, um, but I found sort of like a way to do it. So I feel very satisfied in both. And also those experiences are life inspiring, art imitating life. Absolutely. And this wonderful creative Absolutely. process. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I wanted to play a clip from Unexpected. Great. And I don't think it this clip necessarily typifies the movie. It's the scene where Samantha is going to pick up Jasmine and they're going to she's taking her to the University of Illinois. Oh, yeah, yeah, great. And uh, we'll let it roll. Hey, Miss Evans. Hey. I brought snacks. So, you ready to see your new school? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so we have the um, tour scheduled for 11. Yeah. I think it's going to be really fun. And then um, we 
have a, an appointment at the admissions office to go over yeah. financial aid and family housing. And then when we're done, I really want to take you to Quattro's for pizza because it is so good. Oh, what are you doing? Pouring my juice in here. And you're gonna do what with it? I'm gonna drink it. Oh my God, no. Jasmine, no, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> oh my, stop it. Yes. No, stop it. Mm. Oh my gosh, that's disgusting. Mm. Stop it. It's so good. Stop it. It smells so bad in here. I, I'm pulling over. It. No, you need to get rid of that. I'm serious. I'm getting, I'm what gonna throw up. What you want me to do? No, Jasmine, I'm pulling over and I want you to get it out of the car, okay? No, no, throw it out of the car. It's what do you want me to flip it? Just litter, litter. Throw it on litter the ground? It. Just no, throw it. Just throw it in the ditch. I don't even care. Just here, just get rid of it. Just chuck it. Just go, go. So when I said I didn't typify the movie, that's not what I meant. I meant that it's maybe not like, you know, a defining scene in the movie. But what I really liked about it is that it's it's like playing off of this idea of like pregnancy cravings and all the weird food that you eat. And in it, the character Jasmine is pouring pickle juice into a bag of Cheetos. And I liked that you were also using junk food to explore issues of privilege. Yeah. And how their relationship is, they're coming from different backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it's interesting that you say that about pregnancy cravings because it, that, like, weirdly wasn't my intention. And I didn't even think about the fact that it could be uh, perceived as, like, pregnancy cravings until I got some reviews that mentioned pregnancy cravings because... Uh, that combination of, you know, it's hard to tell from the clip, but what she's doing in the car is she has a, a you know, a pickle in the bag, the kind that you buy from a gas station, and then a bag of flaming Hot Cheetos. And she eats the pickle and then pours the pickle juice into the bag of flaming Hot Cheetos, shakes it up, and then drinks it. And it is, like, honestly the most disgusting thing <laughs> But it came from real life. One of my students was working in my classroom and ate that snack. And I was like, you have to get out. I am you, you like literally have to take that food out of my classroom. It is like <laughs> disgusting. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I just did that. You know, I wrote it as a sort of a funny scene. It was definitely something that was funny that came from real life. But also, again, you know, like sort of that difference in um, in kind of uh, culture and sort of like what kind of snacks you eat, et cetera. I'm sure Samantha had like some organic like, you know, almond butter with apple slices or whatever in the car for a snack. Because um, <laughs> that's what you would have. Because right? that's what I would have. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so. So, yeah, there's a, a few things there that that I I did want to uh talk about like these different backgrounds that these characters come from and and the assumptions they have about each other and and kind of like how they react to those things and yeah they also happen to be pregnant so the pregnancy craving assumption totally makes sense i also wanted to bring that up because you have an interesting relationship to food which you kind of touched on earlier yeah but you had a an ice cream company is that yeah, right? i had an ice cream company for three years called nice cream in chicago 
that was like organic, local, you know, farm uh, ingredients. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm like way into food. I think about it and talk about it a lot. <laughs> and it and so the the Cheeto scene was. Um... Did you ever try that? Did you no, <laughs> ever I try that I have never brought myself to do it because it, okay. it's just, it grosses me out. But a lot of people did. Gail, uh, who plays Jasmine, of course, did and was like, it's great. And then my DP, Damar, liked it. A lot of people on the crew tried it and really liked it. And, you know, we had it as like a joke snack a lot um for like our parties and stuff once the movie premiered but yeah so i think i think it's like funny i think everybody really likes it i'm just like not into pickles in a bag and you have to you have to be into pickles in a bag in order to like get into that snack (laughs) that's great um well so unexpected is streaming on netflix Mm -hmm. now and it's received a lot of positive press yeah variety magazine said says this of the film Chris Swanberg makes a huge leap into the indie mainstream with her delicate and beautiful third feature. Do you do you feel like you've turned a corner in terms of your craft with this film? Uh, you know, the budget level just went up significantly. Um, I mean, like 10, 20 times, uh, 10 times like more money than I was making my first two features for. Um, so it was the first time that I've had a proper crew and, uh, you know, departments that are dealing just with like locations and, and art and wardrobe and, uh, makeup and, and stuff like that. And, you know, that's a very big difference in terms of making movies. So in a way, even though it was my third feature, it a little bit felt like kind of like my first feature. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was really fun to work that way. It, it came away with a film that was like very professional looking, um, and, uh, and yeah, definitely. It, it feels like a, a major, uh, turn for my career. So when you were casting the film, did you use all actors and actresses from Chicago? No, um, I, I knew, you know, what happens when you have a bigger budget level is that people expect that the movie make its money back when you have, uh, investors, et cetera, and other people that are putting money into your movie. And, um, unfortunately, the climate um, requires that you have actors of a some caliber of fame in order to for people to actually buy tickets or click on a iTunes to download something. Um, so you kind of have to have um, you know famous ish people in your movie. And so uh, with my script, I went to L.A. and and met with the different agencies there and um, were a- I was able to cast amongst some uh, well-known uh, Hollywood actors. So um, so that, you know, Kobe Smolders, of course, was in How I Met Your Mother for, gosh, nine seasons or something. Um, and then Anders Holm, who plays John, um, is in a show called Workaholics, and he's been on the mini project and um, and stuff like that. And so I met with those guys and really liked them. They're, like, both very normal people um that didn't grow up you know famous and sort of like happened into it and like feel like they have like pretty wholesome backgrounds and that like bleeds into them feeling like real people when you meet them um and so I had a great connection with both of them they're both parents uh Kobe had a similar thing happen to her than in the movie where she sort of accidentally got pregnant um and then uh Anders has a I 
you know, I think an 18 month old baby now. Um, and, and so they really related to that, uh, that part of the film, um, and the story. And, um, and so, uh, I was excited to work with them and they were excited to go to Chicago. Anders, um, is from, uh, from the Chicago area. So that was cool too. Um, and then, um, the, Gail, who played Jasmine, we really did try and find a young actress in Chicago. Um, but because of our limited resources and time, I wasn't able to spend the kind of time searching that I really needed to because the character's so young. Um, she, I knew that she was the actress was going to be fairly unknown. But it's like a meaty role, so she had to be really good. And um, and so we did a lot of auditions with, with girls in Chicago, and, and we found some that we liked, but ultimately um, we needed to reach out further. So we opened it up nationally, and, and Gail we found outside of Atlanta. Um, but most of the, the day players, the people that just have like a few lines, um, are, are people that live and, and work in Chicago. You have an interesting, the movie has an interesting connection to Bloomington in that the music consultant for Unexpected is Chris Swanson yeah. of Secretly Canadian. Right, right. And I, you we're seeing more and more collaborations between independent filmmakers and independent music labels. And I was I was wondering if you could you could talk about that yeah, and how that's Chris like is, uh, music licensing is yeah great so this is my first time working with a music supervisor um, and uh, and Chris Swanson yeah lives here in Bloomington and um, he's uh, he's done music for my husband's um, I'm gonna say last two movies he he did uh, the music for uh, Drinking Buddies and um, and then recently digging for fire so so you know I know him and um, I asked him if this would be something he was interested in and I think you know at the time he was kind of like just getting into this um, and it was fun for him so you know and what's always remarkable about stuff that Chris suggests is that uh, a lot of the music he was sending me to listen to felt like music I knew already but I had never heard it before there's something familiar about it where when you listen to it in a movie you go like oh I think I know the song but you totally don't <laughs> um, and he's he's great so that was a really really fun process and and definitely I want to work with Chris again tell us what you have coming up next what what projects are you working on now um, I am writing right now so I'm writing a, a, a film that um, I want to make next uh, my own project and then I'm also working on like a script that I'm getting paid to write so which is really cool um so yeah I'm just like sort of writing and um and planning what uh what film I want to make next is that um is it a challenge not writing a script that's not based on your own life uh yeah you know neither one of the things I'm writing are really based on my own life actually um so yeah it is kind of a challenge but also there's something a little bit freeing to it too um to to write something that uh i don't have to constantly check back in with myself to see if that really happened or not i've been speaking today with chris swanberg thank you so much for being here with us today this is betsy shepherd for profiles and thanks for listening
copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.